Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. I'm Bryce Caster. And today we're discussing the future of travel, tourism, and adventure in the world after COVID. So Bryce, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for inviting me. Very excited to be here. Yeah, so you've been to more places than I think anyone I know. Definitely anyone I know who's our age or younger. So just to start, how many countries have you been to? How many states have you been to? How many continents? Sure. So it depends on how you define a country, but uh, of the UN members and observer states, I've been to 70. Uh, I've been to all 50 of the U.S. states and a few other places, uh, Antarctica, Greenland, uh, Western Sahara, Guam, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, just to name a few. Wow, that's awesome. And what is it that compels you to travel to so many places? Sure. So travel has been a, a lifelong passion of mine. I think I grew up always wanting to travel, but uh, I grew up in a pretty remote mountainous area. So uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, but it was in the hills surrounded by state parks. So uh, a lot of my friends' parents didn't want to take their friends to visit me. And so I grew up hiking and my parents taking long drives to to get me places. So I guess I was used to uh, traveling long distances to to do things Uh, in the sixth grade. I uh, had to take an exam where I had to learn every country and capital in the world. And I think that was the moment that I knew I wanted to visit all of these places. So it's really been a, something I've dreamed of my whole life. That's great. And you're an interesting person to interview because you've got so much data about what's going on in the world, having been to all of these places. And I think most people that talk about what's going on in the world, they rely on you know, news articles and social media posts and reporting from various places. So it's rare to get someone on who actually has first person experience in so many places. So I'd love to just get a sense from you of what was your travel like, travel life like leading up to COVID? How did COVID impact it? And how have you coped and adjusted because now you're traveling again? Sure. So uh, I'm currently a business school student in Barcelona, but I I can talk about my life before that. Um, So before I was working in El Segundo, California, uh, which is right next to the LA airport. And uh, because of the proximity of the airport, I would find flight deals and I would travel for the weekend and I could be from my desk. I can leave from my desk and be on a plane an hour later. So I was I say a bargain hunter looking for really whatever the cheap flight was. Um, and so that took me to some unusual destinations. So really trying to make the most of my vacation times. Um, in Europe, similar situation before COVID, uh, but except it's a lot cheaper to fly around places. So I could go to say Malta from Barcelona for $20 round trip, wow. which was not very possible in in the States. Um, so I would say I call myself a weekend warrior. And when I had the chance to travel for longer, so to school breaks or vacations from work, I make the most of it. I leave right after work and come back uh, pretty much the day before I had to start. Um, with COVID, that really hasn't changed. Uh, certainly in the beginning uh, of the pandemic, when in Spain, we weren't even allowed to go outside of our apartments. It certainly has changed things. But uh, now, uh, things are more open and you can travel if you're clever, I'd say. Right. So you were in Spain with uh, at business school when COVID broke out. So you weren't traveling while it broke out. Correct. So I was traveling the weekend before. I went to Mallorca with some friends and then 
that Tuesday, uh, the school announced that they were going virtual for the next two weeks. And then that Saturday, Spain announced a national lockdown where it was illegal to go outside for any reason except for, I think, grocery shopping and to go to the hospital. One of the tricky things about traveling during COVID is that the restrictions are always changing. And in Spain, uh, that is actually at the what are called the autonomous community level, essentially a U.S. state level. Every autonomous community has their own rules for travel, and that changes every week. So if you don't follow up on the news, then you'll you wouldn't know where to go. So luckily, I follow up on the news, and I so I know where all the the places I can travel are. Um, what is cool about traveling during COVID is that nobody is there. Uh, there are almost no tourists anywhere you go. So even if you go to these very uh, touristy places, a couple weeks ago I was at the Real Alcazar in Sevilla in the south of Spain, and typically you have to book uh, a ticket a couple days in advance. I walked in and was the only person there. Um, this past weekend I was in La Rioja, uh, Spanish wine country, and they told me I was the first English language tourist they've had in six months. Uh, so it's very special to see a place uh, knowing that nobody is there and uh, in my mind sort of seeing it at its most authentic state, mm. untouched by, by tourists. Definitely. Um, now you were, you were also just featured by our high school as someone who's traveled all around the world and I loved what you wrote there. And you also talked in your article about misconceptions people have about travel. I think a lot of people, especially people who haven't been abroad and haven't been to many places, they have this sense that it's too expensive. I've got to save up for like months and months or years, or maybe once I retire. Um, a lot of people also think it's too dangerous. How would you address people who have those misconceptions? I'll start on the expensive part. Um, I, traveling can be expensive. So you can book expensive plane tickets for thousands of dollars. You can stay in these fancy hotels that are hundreds of dollars a night, but there are other options. Um, one way that I travel around is in backpacker hostels, and they're not very common in the U.S., but pretty much in every other country in the world, this is the go-to method of traveling for uh, people in their late teens to 30s, where you get a bunk in a room that you share with six or seven other people, um, possibly more, um, and it's very cheap. So in places in Central America, you can stay in a hostel for less than $10 a night, even in expensive cities like London, you can stay for $20, $20 a night. So I think lodging is generally the biggest cost of traveling, but because I can stay in hostels, I'm able to bring that price down a lot. Um, there are other programs such as Woofer, uh, Couchsurfing, where you actually stay for free uh, in exchange for either companionship or uh, work. Sometimes you can work on a farm. Uh, in exchange for food and lodging. So if you're willing to sacrifice maybe some of the comforts that you're used to, uh, you can definitely travel for, for cheap. Um, and the other thing is danger. Um, certainly there are dangerous places in the world. I would not want to go to Yemen right now. I would not want to go to Syria right now. But I think those are pretty limited. I think you can maybe count the number of dangerous countries on, on your hand. Um, but the rest of the world is honestly pretty safe, um, especially when you compare it to places in the United States where uh, we have some of the highest, some of the cities in the U.S. have some of the highest crime rates in the world, but people aren't afraid to go there. So mm -hmm. I think if you're willing to go to cities like St. Louis, where I went to college, or I lived for four years, no problem, or 
New Orleans, uh, which are two of the, I think, 50 most dangerous cities in the world, uh, I, I don't think it would be such a stretch to want to go to other countries. Um, certainly there are dangerous cities there, but uh, if you, you don't have to go to those cities. And if you do, there's always ways to stay safe. Right. And do you have tips for how to stay safe? Like, I have heard that sometimes people who are, let's say, robbers or you know something of the sort will go after people who look like tourists. So they might go to a place where lots of tourists aggregate and pickpocket and that sort of thing. So do you have tips about like how to stay safe and, and maybe not to like show that you have an expensive smartphone, things like that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So pickpocketing is probably the most likely thing that would happen to you. Um, so what I do is I never wear fancy clothing. I have the same travel outfit that I have all the time and it, it doesn't look very good. Uh, I have these kind of mountaineering black pants that have zippered pockets. So thieves can't reach into my pockets. Um, and I don't wear any sort of jewelry. Uh, that's usually a big giveaway. Mm. The other thing is the smartphone. So in dangerous places, uh, I am very careful about when I take my phone out to take pictures. So before taking a picture, I'll look around, uh, scout out the area, see if there's anyone near me that could be a threat. And if not, then I'll take out my phone to take pictures. Uh, the other thing is to be careful of who you're talking to. That generally when someone approaches you on the street in a busy touristy area, if they're not a shopkeeper, they're probably trying to get something out of you. Mm -hmm. They're not trying to be your friend. That's um, like Times someone, Square, right? <laughs> yeah, if you meet someone in Times Square who's asking you where you're from, they're probably not there uh, to genuinely be your friend. And that's, this, I think, the same in many, many countries and places around the world. There are ways to make local friends, but on the street is generally not the mm -hmm. way to do it. Um, the other thing is to look up common scams and just know that those are coming. Um, so you're, you're aware of the conversations and the situations that could be dangerous. Right. And have you ever had a situation where someone tried to, to pickpocket you or held you up at gunpoint or anything like that? No, I've never, I've never been pickpocketed or held up at gunpoint. I'd say I've been scammed a couple times, uh, mainly by taxi drivers where mm. we negotiate a price and then they have another price, um, or maybe I paid for something and there's a miscommunication, um, but nothing, nothing serious. Right. Well, you did have that one case in the Congo where there was there was armed um, militia men who you, you guys had yes. to bribe to get through. Maybe you can just say a little bit about that. Sure. So I took a trip to uh, Republic of the Congo. So there's two Congos. There's DRC. This is the other country just to the north of it. The capital is called Brazzaville, and I was taking a trip from there to the second biggest city, which is called Point Noir, on the coast. Originally, I was going to take a train, but the train wasn't running, so the tour company that I was working with uh, said, oh, let's set you up on this bus. So it was a public bus. It took about 12 hours, and it was very common in Africa, but I didn't know it at the time, are these roadblocks. And instead of having, say, police cars driving up and down the road, they have checkpoints where the police will have a big chain across the road and everyone has to go out. So everybody else on the bus, uh, except for me and one other guy, were Congolese, so they, I, I looked very different from them. And so the people picked me out and they asked me, every single time they asked for my passport and when they realized that I wasn't Congolese, they'd send me to this tent 
where I would have to talk to a army officer and they'd ask for papers. The company gave me papers, but as is typical in Africa, they would tell you that your papers are wrong or that some, there's some issue with the papers and you need to pay money uh, to them to remedy the situation. Mm -hmm. uh, basically a bribe, but they, they try to disguise it another way. Um, I didn't know that this was typical all over Africa, or not the touristy countries, but most of the continent. Um, sometimes I would try to negotiate with them, but sometimes it, it was not going to happen. Um, the bribes were only, I don't know, about $3, but it's not about the money, it's about the principle of it. Yeah, and I have heard that when you get into hairy spots with traveling, that sometimes just throwing a little bit of money at the problem makes it go away. I go down to Mexico pretty often, and that's like a known thing that if you get stopped there, usually a little bit of a bribe will solve your problem. But obviously, it would be great to live in a world where that didn't have to happen. Yeah, if you have enough time in these roadblocks, you can get by without a bribe. You can smile, you can talk, you can argue your way out of it. But when I was on this bus, the bus had to leave. Uh, mm. I was in a uh, a tough negotiating standpoint. Right. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the digital nomad lifestyle and how in modern times you really can work while you travel. And there's obviously a, a, a pro to tech, like it can enable so much where you hardly have to carry anything. You can basically just be a person in the world traveling and have everything you need with just your phone and an internet connection. Um, but also maybe there's downsides to tech and maybe it's you're less able to become fully integrated into the place where you are if you're always on your phone. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts on the digital nomad lifestyle and how tech helps and hinders travel. What's good about it is that you get to live in a bunch of different places. I think the downside is uh, you might not be able to connect as well to your coworkers. I don't think there is uh, a true substitute to face-to-face -face interactions. That a lot of times if you're the remote person at the company and everyone else is in person, you sort of get forgotten. So you get left, uh, you just get forgotten for promotions, for working on projects. You're just out of sight, out of mind. Do you think that maybe will change post-COVID where a lot of companies are going remote first? So it's more like uh, typical to have everyone be remote? I think it will change depending on your job function and the company. So mm -hmm. for companies that are tech forward, that are already mostly remote, I don't think this will be an issue at all. Um, I think for companies that really value the face-to-face -face interaction and when you're maybe not in a technical role, uh, it, it, it could hinder uh, your performance later on. But that gap is lessened because of the pandemic. Now there's this other controversy that recently bubbled up on Twitter that I'd love to get your thoughts on where this woman had been, she was an American who was living in Bali and she posted this tweet storm about how, oh my God, it's so amazing living in Bali. You can live here with such a low cost of living. It's beautiful. And you know, she can still work at home. And then all of these people replied to her tweet and said, you are exploiting this country that has a lower you know, standard of living. You're not paying your taxes. And so there started to be these sort of two sides of Twitter where Part of them were pro living and working in another place where others felt like that was exploitative. Um, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts of the ethics behind, you know, living in another place and working there. Sure. Uh, I have heard of this, this tweet, uh, and this is definitely a 
interesting discussion. Um, on the pro, uh, I mean, you as the worker, you're, you're sort of arbitraging the cost of living around the world. And so you can live a much better lifestyle than you possibly could have by moving to a less expensive place. Um, you also can contribute to the economy because you're spending certainly rent and food. So you're spending money in these places and you could be helping them. Mm -hmm. um, I think Bali is a good example of sort of the downside of uh, this type of living because there are so many digital nomads in Bali that it has completely changed the fabric of at least large parts of the island. And so the rents are much less affordable and they're having to change their culture to cater to these tourists and digital nomads. So is there a way you can do it where it, it would be ethically okay? Yeah, I still think you can do it, but you need to be respectful of the people around you. So you need to realize that when you move to a new place that there are you can't totally take your culture with you. You have to mm. adapt to the local culture and certainly get your visas in order and pay local taxes. Right. That's what's required. Well, that actually gets to my next question, which is about how perceptions are different in different places around the world. And another thing you mentioned in your post was how in South America, they're taught that North America and South America are one continent, whereas obviously that's not the case in the US. So I'm curious if you have any interesting insights of just different perceptions around the world that might be different from what we're used to in America? Sure. I think I've gotten a lot more uh, insights into this by living in Spain. So there's, I think there's multiple levels of travel. One is to simply visit a place, which is usually what I do. But because I've been in Spain for two years, gained residency, uh, I've been able to get a deeper understanding uh, of the culture and their, and their thoughts. So yes, they believe that uh, the North and South America are one continent called America. And I think that stems to their history where both continents were essentially theirs for 300 years. So it's, it's just this new landmass that they discovered. Um, yes, they're separated by uh, an impenetrable jungle and historically they were different uh, different landmasses and that now because of geology they're, they're there's a narrow isthmus, but uh, the Spanish don't think that way. Mm. Um, and there's so many different, there's so many ways that I've experienced this that um, I mean, we just, things that we take for granted that are just not. I think one thing is uh, what government should do. And I think in the US, we have a more of a capitalist approach that says that, you know, you should, you can achieve what you deserve based on the work that you put in. And the Europeans have, a, I think, a different outlook that is the government should improve people's as much, should improve people's lives as much as possible. And so any way that the governments can do more to make the overall quality of life better, that would be a good thing. Um, and, I, and in the U.S., I don't think that they would agree with that. So one example is healthcare, is that uh, the Spanish government, the Spanish constitution actually has a right to healthcare. Mm. And I don't think many people in the U.S. Uh, would agree that that should be part of the Constitution, or at least it's, it's a debate in the U.S. I also want to ask you about places that are truly wild, because I've been to 27 countries, not 70, but I've always wanted to find places that are truly wild. And I went to Patagonia, and even there, 
it was hard to find places that are truly wild where there's not hotels or roads or restaurants. Like the world is so developed and we've lost two thirds of wildlife in the last 50 years. So it seems like there's less and less wilderness to adventure to. I'd like to get your thoughts on the importance of preserving wilderness and also why it's valuable to go to someplace that's truly wild. Sure. I mean, I think it's very special to be in a wild area, to be so far from other humans. Um, and luckily, the U.S. actually has a lot of wilderness because um, most of the development, in especially the Western U.S., hasn't come until the last 150 years. Much of it is, is very, very wild. So you can go and you can camp uh, even just a day's walk from a road and you can be completely isolated. One of the tough parts about preparing for it is be that there is no help coming for you. So you need to be extra careful when packing things and you have to assume that there's no cell coverage there. So um, even if you're only packing, you're going on a two-day trip, I might pack for four or five days just in case something goes wrong. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the other things that I really respect about the way that you travel is that you do a lot of solo travel. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the relative value of companion travel versus solo travel and how people can find which is right for them. Sure. Well, I think both are right for people. And I think people should do both solo and companion traveling. Uh, personally, I prefer solo traveling um, because it forces you to experience the culture, that there's no one around you that you can talk to when you're bored. It forces you to get out of your comfort zone. So whether that means going out and talking to locals, uh, making friends in the hostel, or just walking and being with your thoughts, solo travel really makes you experience a place more in depth. Yeah. I've always felt like solo travel is harder in the moment but afterwards you value it more or you have more personal growth. I, I agree. All the best experiences that I've had traveling have all been while traveling solo. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, but there are definitely benefits to traveling with someone too, that it's nice to share experiences with other people. And what's the right number if you are going to do companion travel? Two people, three people? Is five too I would many? I would never travel with uh, more than three. So more than two other people. I think with three, you can have a vote. So two mm -hmm. people can vote one way, one person can vote another. When you get to four, then you can it gets a little more difficult to uh, to make decisions. Right. You can do it with more than four, but I would not expect the same amount of discovery, and I would probably appoint a leader that's someone who's in charge of making all the decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you about is perceptions of America abroad. What's people's reaction when you tell them you're an American and how has that changed over the years or from place to place? Well, um, I don't think most people really care that they notice that there's, I don't know, most people are going about their lives and don't really think about other countries, that America is somewhat irrelevant to, I'd say, three quarters of the world. That said, um, a lot of people will separate the government and the, and you as an American. So even if maybe they don't like Trump or they like Obama or they don't like Obama, they 
have a different opinion of the Americans themselves. Right. And generally, people think that Americans are outgoing, very personable, and friendly. Generally, they're they're thought of as good travelers. I would say in the very very touristy areas and big cities around Europe, uh, you might get less experienced travelers, um, and people may think of them as kind of rude. But uh, I'd say as a whole, it's probably a different sample set of Americans who you'll meet abroad versus Americans you'll meet in America. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, I will. What is it? A half of Americans don't have a passport. Yeah, that's crazy. So it's definitely a unique sample size of people that that does travel abroad. Yeah, I always like to tell people that when people talk about America, I said, you know, I have this opinion, but this is a qualifier that I'm not a good representative of the U.S. as a whole. Right, right. Well, now I want to get into the future and get your sense of how things are going to change from here. So maybe we can now get into the future scenarios. That sounds great. Let's start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. There's two factors to this. So one is the epidemiological situation. So I'd say in the worst case scenario, not everybody gets vaccinated fast enough and that more virus mutations occur that could uh, spread around the world and countries continue to close down. Sort of kind of what we're hearing about with the British and the Brazilian and the South African variants, that Mm -hmm. more of these variants could come up and disrupt travel for years to come. I think the other thing is that the virus has caused people to sort of be afraid of globalization and other cultures. And in a worst case scenario, people are more afraid of each other. We hear in the U.S. that there's these attacks on uh, Asians um, for spreading the virus, which is totally baseless, but there could be more hatred uh, amongst each other, amongst ourselves. Uh, I'd say those two factors would be the, the worst case scenario. And what do you think for the best case scenario? Best case scenario. Yeah, uh, in the best case scenario, well, I think we're going to find out what happens with uh, countries like Israel, which has vaccinated almost its entire population. So in the best case scenario, uh, the, vi- the virus does not spread through vaccinated people um, and the, the, the virus essentially disappears in a couple of months. In that case, it hopefully will be almost business as usual back in 2019. Uh, with lots of people traveling around the world. Um, but I think people will have a greater appreciation for what travel means because they've spent this year in in confinement. Right. So hopefully the travelers who are going to come in the future will be uh, more appreciative and more interested in learning about other cultures. Yeah. And, and do you think that Will it be likely that they will require proof of vaccination in places like the EU? Have, has anywhere asked, asked you that so far? Absolutely. So there's, uh, there's what's called a vaccine passport, which is being discussed. And a number of countries have implemented this or are, or are going to be implementing this. I know, uh, I believe it's Estonia is going to allow people who ha- are vaccinated in uh, without a quarantine or a test. Um, Seychelles was going to do the same. I think this will become the norm. 
Um, but requiring a, a shot or a vaccination is not a new thing. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of countries in Africa require a yellow fever vaccination and you need to carry a card. Um, and so it's, it's not an unreasonable ask for countries to require this. I've been hearing that uh, people think that vaccine passports are uh, unfair, but I don't think so. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that the country has the right to control their epidemiological situation and it, it's, not a, it's not a new concept. The final thing I want to ask with the best case scenario is this other quote you have that I love, which is that adventure is a mindset and you don't have to necessarily go to the other side of the world to be an adventure. In fact, you can be an adventure right in your own city. Sure. So I think a lot of people, when they think of adventure, they think that you have to go on this big journey. You have to go somewhere exotic and you have to spend a lot of money or time to do that. But I don't think so. I think what adventuring is is pushing beyond your comfort zone. Um, and whatever that is, as long as you are pushing beyond that, you're going on an adventure. So for some people, an adventure would be maybe going to a new city uh, nearby or walking down a street that you haven't walked down or sleeping in a tent for the first time. For other people, that could be going to a country around the world, on the other side of the world, but it doesn't have to be. Um, I think that if, as long as you're pushing yourself, you're activating that adventure muscle, then, then, you're, then you're adventuring. Definitely. Yeah, I find it's useful to think about the default mode network, which is this notion that you get stuck in the same rut when you do the same routine day after day. So you have your, your default you know, mode for, oh, it's time to brush my teeth, it's time to do my work, it's time to go on my normal commute, and everything becomes pretty mechanical. And it takes really low mental effort to be able to do what you do each day if you're doing the same thing every day. Whereas even if you go to a new coffee shop that you've never been to, all of a sudden you're taking in totally new sensory perceptions. And then when you go to sleep that night, you're reorganizing it into your memory stores. And so really like, I mean, I've been doing this thing called the artist way for the last few months where at least once a week you go somewhere you've never been before, you don't bring your phone and you just take in some new phenomena. Mm -hmm. And I found that that's like, it just replenishes your creative well, and you're able to be happier and more productive in life. Absolutely. I was hearing from, there's some very famous traveler who I forget his name, but he was talking about what are called micro adventures. And so he would say, okay, what is the craziest thing I can do in my town? So he decided that he wanted to walk around the city in one day. And it was about 50 kilometers around the city. He said, I want to walk around the city. And that I would call a, a huge adventure, um, seeing everything you can in the city, but it didn't require a expensive plane ticket. Um, mm. And he saw some new parts of his town. He was able to just experience his town in a new way. Um, and I think there's many ways to do that uh, anywhere you live. Yeah, it really is just like a different filter on reality. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into the most likely scenario now. Most likely scenario. I think the most likely situation is that the developed countries will get the vaccine and will be able to travel uh, pretty much freely around the world. Um, I think that some countries will require COVID tests to enter and to leave but the testing capabilities will become better. Um, 
so I think it'll be more or less business as usual. I think the one change that's going to happen is an appreciation for what's called slow travel. So people are going to be more inclined to go to a place and stay for a lot longer because of the increased costs of testing in both directions. So right. digital nomadism will be on the rise. Um, renting Airbnbs for months at a time will definitely become more of the norm. A lot of people have been saving up a lot of money uh, over the last year, and now they have some disposable income to to travel if they've been able to work. And workplaces will accommodate this as well. Yeah, and I think that's so great to have more people traveling. And I think to this quote from Socrates where he says, I am not an Athenian, I am not a Greek, but a citizen of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we can have that mindset, I'm also a big fan of the sovereign individual mindset where you can pretty much be your own sovereign country just as a person with modern technology and just being savvy in how you navigate the world. So are there any any final thoughts for listeners, any travel tips you have or words of inspiration? Sure. Uh, I think that you should continue to keep pushing yourself to the edge of your comfort zone, wh whatever that is. Um, and as long as you keep working on this and flexing this muscle, uh, I think you'll, you might discover something new uh, about yourself or about the world. Um, and I think it makes you a, a better person. So travel is one way to push yourself to the edge of your comfort zone. So I would say if you have the ability to, uh, the time and, and the money, uh, travel as much as you can. Uh, I've never regretted going on a trip. That's great. We really are in this interesting time period where not only can we travel physically from place to place faster than ever before and supersonic planes are now becoming more prominent and we may soon have rocket ships that literally go into low Earth orbit and then take you to the other side of the world in like an hour. So as far as physical travel, things have never been more efficient. And also for virtual travel, like bringing the world to us, like the fact that you can just look at your phone and see what's going on with the rover on Mars is pretty incredible. So we are pretty much putting out sensors all throughout the cosmos and bringing them back to us. And yes, we're trapped in the arrow of time. We can't go backwards into the past or side to side with other parallel dimensions, but we have full control over space and being able to travel different geographies. So it just seems like so, so important to take advantage of that freedom that we all have. Absolutely. Just the amount of data that is available on the internet has just increased exponentially. The fact that you can drop a pin and look at any street pretty much anywhere in the world yeah. is uh, pretty spectacular. So yes, I would definitely recommend virtual travel as well. Um, if you're going somewhere, uh, I would also recommend looking at the place and doing some research on wherever you're going to go. Um, Google Street View, travel guides, reading news articles in, in that country. Um, I think that can all help you get into the right mindset uh, to better experience a place. Totally. And where can people find you online if they want to read your blog and follow you on sure. Instagram? Yeah, so my blog is BryceCaster.com and my Instagram profile is at BryceCaster. We're going to talk about awesome. what has happened. That's great. Well, thanks so much again, Bryce, for, for joining us. And what will inevitably Thank happen. Thank you. The past, the present.